Welcome to another episode of In a Minute with Evan Lovett. And we are here in the IM studios in another episode brought to you by our friends at Cerritos Auto Square. And by the way, did you see that documentary yet? Nothing like it in the world. Go to their website, check it out. It's free. It's honestly great. A lot of history. You know how we do. But listen to this. I want to get into the nitty gritty of this episode because it's about transplants, but transplants of a different kind. Don't get your hackles all up yet. Over the relatively short history of LA, the LA American dream story is only possible because of transplants. That's what I'm talking about. People who left their native city, state, or country and ended up in LA to cultivate that dream. And a lot of the big names may not have came from LA, but they made it here. Kobe Bryant, Tupac, Mickey Mouse. Those are three that come to mind. But what about not people? What about transplants of a different kind? I'm talking about maybe brands, concepts, maybe even places that are so indelibly linked to Los Angeles that it's hard to think of them as being from somewhere else. I came up with seven of these that are so good, so fun, and so head-tiltingly, what? That's not from LA? That I can't wait to dive into this list. Seven things you think are from LA, but aren't. All right, y'all, let's get into it. Yep, yep, yep. You know how we start with one thing that happened in LA this week. And you know what happened? I got another DM about a specific brand. I continue to get DMs about why don't you do an LA in a minute episode on this place that's inextricably linked to Los Angeles. And it's a piece of place that I've not only gone to for decades, but a place that is absolute custom for families baseball teams basically anybody in LA, LA with a good group that wants to hang out chill enjoy their pizza and a place that feels so LA that the LA Times in 2003 actually hispanicized the name because it was quote so linked with Latino culture in Los Angeles I'm talking about Shakey's Pizza Parlor or what the LA Times referred to as El Shakey's. That's right. Say what you will, but if you want a robust meal and a place to hang out, chicken, mojos, pizza, arcade, beer, pitchers, I challenge you to do better than Shakey's, with that, which has 50 locations left in the U.S., and 38 of them are right here in L.A. But here's the thing. Shakey's is from Sacramento. What? That's right. In 1954, Shakey's was one of the first franchise pizza parlors in the world. And it was opened by Sherwood Shakey Johnson and Ed Plummer. Now, the name came from Johnson's nickname, which was a result of nerve damage following malaria that he caught in World War II. So he's honestly shaky. And he wanted to open a pizza parlor in Sacramento. So he opened it on a Friday. It's in 1954. But the pizza ovens weren't even completed yet. So what did he do? He just poured beer and he served beer to go along with his Dixieland jazz, to go with his banjo playing, to go with his live music. And they had a killer weekend. Shakey's took the profits from that beer and finally finished the ovens and bought the ingredients for the pizza the following week. So any place that starts 
with a good beer weekend. I'm going to put in my good graces. Let's start, let's figure that out. So, so how do you get down to LA? By 1961, the pizza chicken Mojo's beer formula was so popular that Shakey's already had a hundred locations. Again, the first and fastest franchising pizza place in the U S and their first LA location was in Montclair. That was their first LA County location. Followed quickly by Pomona, Ontario, West Covina. By the 1970s, there were more than 500 shakies, including in Japan and Philippines. And by the way, there's still more than 100 shakies in the Philippines to this day. More than twice as many are here in the U.S. Now, shakies wasn't just known for their pizza. They, like I said, had the live music, the banjo, the piano, and people loved it. And Shaky Johnson himself was inducted into the Banjo Hall of Fame. I kid you not. And I didn't know that stat about Shakey's, but that's how Shakey started gaining its its flavor and started gaining that appeal. People like the music, people like the beer, and obviously people like the food. But listen to this. As often happens, Shakey sold out. No hate on that. Get your money, my man. And the corporate overlords that took it up, took it out, Move Shakey's in a different direction. They almost ran into the ground, to be honest with you, because by the year 2000 of those 500s, of those 500 locations, less than 100 survived. But then get this. Funny thing happened. Shakey's was actually bought out by their largest franchisee, the Jackamar Corporation, which is based in Alhambra. They own 19 locations. And they noticed that the shakies that were still succeeding, that were still bringing in customers, mostly had Latino proprietor, mostly had a Latino base of customers. So shakies and Jackamar started putting an emphasis on the locations in the Latino areas, going so far as to say, quote, we are a relatively Hispanic brand now. So Shakey started adding game rooms to the ones that didn't have it. They started sponsoring youth sports teams aggressively, becoming family-oriented. And now this, they said, struck a chord with our Latino consumers who loyally support companies that show community involvement. Listen, I can only speak for my wife's family, and, you know, they, they're very community-oriented. It's a good, I mean, look, that's the culture. And you go to Shakey's, and that's the demographic that you see in there. And more more than half of the advertising budget of Shakey since the year 2000 targets Latinos, including Spanish language ads, hence El Shakey's, which in turn helps Shakey's profile in Latino areas. El Monte, Huntington Park, La Puente, Boyle Heights are some of their highest volume locations. And well, everywhere in Los Angeles, which has embraced and adopted Shakey's to the point that the LA Times calls it El Shakey's, even though they're from 350 miles away in Sacramento. Now, you know another place that isn't from Los Angeles, but really seems like it? It's the bastion for $25 smoothies, attractive influencers, attractive influencers drinking $25 smoothies. You know what I'm talking about. Erewhon. Eh? Not from New York, not from L.A. Well, the New York Times called Erewhon L.A.'s hottest hangout. L.A.ist called it L.A.'s hipster bougie grocer. And even across the pond in the U.K., the Guardian calls Erewhon L.A.'s cult grocer. But 
funny thing about that is Erewhon is not from Los Angeles. It was founded in Boston in 1966 by Machio and Aveline Cushy. Sorry about the pronunciation. You know, I am terrible pronunciation. The name Erewhon itself, by the way, comes from an 1872 novel by Samuel Butler called Erewhon. In that novel, Erewhon, which is an anagram of nowhere, nowhere, Erewhon, is a utopia in which individuals are responsible for their own health and prosecuted for the crime of being ill. So that inspired the Cushy family to open Erewhon in Boston as a tiny health food store. 10 by 20 feet with macrobiotics, natural grains, and you know the stuff, the, the hardcore stuff. In my day, my mom used to shop at a place called Mrs. Gooch's, but they owe their, their sort of lineage from the same place and the same type of food. And it wasn't until 1969 that they opened what was called Erewhon West on Beverly Boulevard in West Hollywood. And it was still on the outer cusp of the mainstream, even L.A., they had products like organic buckwheat and barley, jars of apple butter, something called veggie oat soup. Yeah, it's 1969 health food. But that said, this is L.A. People love it. They expanded to three stores in L.A. by the 90s, but eventually had to scale back to the original one. It was too much for the family. And finally, in 2011, Erewhon was sold to Tony and Josephine Antochi. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Again, pronunciation who acquired the remaining store on Beverly Boulevard because their vision was originally to be a franchisee for Dean and DeLuca, sort of a Hamptons, New York version, a little bit more upscale, almost elite. I think it's elitist. Sorry, correct me if I'm wrong, but not as hip as Erewhon was going to be. But their vision was to kind of roll Erewhon out as a more hip Dean and DeLuca. So guess what they did? And Tochi's focused on modernizing the Erewhon brand, product selection, maintaining the original intent, right? For organic, healthy, all this. But for the most part, it is tailor-made for today's influencer culture. As you know, the foods are lit up like a, like a fashion shoot. And there, there's a combination of organic, gluten-free, biodynamic, free-range, vegan, which makes it unmistakably L.A., and in the words of Farley Elliott, the former editor of Eater LA, highly respected writer, love this dude. Erewhon is where everything is so over the top, but in such an earnest way that makes it feel only possible in Los Angeles. More specifically, that the type of people that tend to be perceived as populating Erewhon could only really happen in Los Angeles. Except Erewhon is from Boston. And that is the number two thing that you think is from L.A., but is it? Because I'm talking about another place that is associated directly with Los Angeles. I'm talking about Skid Row. Yeah, Skid Row it covers 50 blocks immediately east of downtown L.A. And it's one of the largest populations of homeless people in the United States. And it's synonymous with homeless people. By the way, there's 15,000 people in those 50 city blocks, unhoused, homeless, transient. And the way that that Skid Row kind of developed, I mean, it's literally its own neighborhood in Los Angeles, by the way. Literally, Skid Row, you see the signs, not just the murals and stuff like that. Like, it is a formal neighborhood in Los Angeles. And it was initially filled by 
seasonal laborers. It was an enclave of small hotels. This is the end of the 19th century, by the way. Movie theaters, cheap eateries. Places that would serve seasonal workers and, and the nearby railroad depots to downtown Los Angeles. By 1930, Skid Row already had 10,000 homeless people, people on the margins of society, alcoholics, mentally and financially unstable. And Skid Row itself had saloons, residential hotels, social services that were serving the, the residents of that area. And by the 70s, it was Vietnam veterans. Services, missions were already in place. They felt outcast from society. Go to Skid Row. That added another layer of complexity to the area. By 1975, L.A. city officials called it an unofficial containment zone. Basically where you sweep the homeless people into this area, into this neighborhood. And look, you guys have seen the names. Now today there's groups, Union Rescue Mission, L.A. Christian Health Center, Volunteers of America. They all provide services for homeless people. One of the biggest hot button issues in L.A. and the epicenter really is Skid Row. And Skid Row is synonymous. It's a place known throughout the world, frankly, as being part of Los Angeles. Except the term Skid Row came from the term Skid Road, which originated in the Pacific Northwest in the late 1800s in the logging industry. They cut down trees and the path in which timber workers would skid the trees or the logs was called the skid road. You had to skid these huge trees down this road. So when a logger did something wrong, he was fired and he was sent down the skid road. Now, down the skid road, where do you put trees? You're, you're shipping them, this is your industry. Well, it's obviously a train. So there's a train station depot. So these unemployed loggers would hop on the trains and go as far away from the Northwest as they could go. And they'd end up on the last train stops in the route. Nowhere to go, so just keep going till you can't go anymore. Right there in downtown Los Angeles on what would become known as Skid Row. L.A. Skid Row, but Skid Road started in the Northwest. Next up at number four is my favorite transplant. Palm trees. Get it? Transplant? <laughs> Okay, seriously though, palm trees line LA streets. I always joke that you could go outside anywhere. You listening right now, whether you're driving or at your house or at a friend's house or at a restaurant, wherever you're at, at the gym, go outside. I'm willing to bet 92% likelihood you could see a palm tree. These things are LA, Silmar to San Pedro, Pacific Palisades to Pomona. They're on our in and out cups for goodness sakes. How could they not be from Los Angeles? Well, Spanish Franciscan and Jesuit missionaries planted LA's first date palms in 1769. It was for ornamental reasons at the time. They looked cool and they fit with the, the environment and biblical associations. But it wasn't really until about the 20th century, like 1900, that palm tree seeds started making their way from Egypt, Mexico, the Canary Islands. But even then, the explosion of palm tree planting in LA didn't begin until the 1930s. Because the city started to embrace, hey, we're a leisure town and a Mediterranean city. And what looks more Mediterranean than these palm trees? And right along with that ethos came the L.A. beautification program and the 1932 Olympics. In prep for the 32 Olympics to beautify the city and to provide jobs to the unemployed during the Great Depression, 
40,000 to 70,000 palm trees were planted throughout the city. Nobody knows the exact number, but that is a ton of palm trees. And again, wherever you are, you can see them today. And why palm trees besides the aforementioned reasons? Well, they're easy to move around. They don't have an elaborate root system and they can be dug up pretty easy in transport. They have a good transport successful success rate. Again, they are transplants, right? But they adapt well as long as they have sun and some water. But here's the thing. You know LA. We've been having rain recently, but palm trees do require that water. And they don't provide much shade. So without a lot of water, they're vulnerable. So there's weevil destruction and they're considered unsustainable for LA. And just to put in perspective, a California palm usually lives 250 years. A Mexican palm lives 500 years. But in LA, the average palm palm tree lifespan is about 70 to 100 years. And because of that, city planners say they're not going to replace dead palm trees with palm trees, but only with native plants and plants to provide more shade and use less water. But the thing is, palm trees symbolize Los Angeles. They represent the LA ethos. And you know what else? Developers like them, residential and commercial. And if you like palm trees, you want to celebrate the palm tree, go see the oldest palm tree in LA. By the way, this isn't your one thing to do in LA this week, but it's a cool thing. It's in Exposition Park. It was planted in 1914. But keep in mind that that palm, the oldest one in LA, is also a transplant. So you know what's our fifth not from LA transplant that people think is from LA? (laughs) Pilates. One of the most viral songs on TikTok over the last year is called LA Pilates Girl. Go look it up. And it makes sense because LA has more Pilates studios than anywhere in the world. Look it up. You know how we do. We get our research and we verify it. Currency, accuracy is currency here. There are more than 300 Pilates studios in LA. That's a lot, but shoot, go down Ventura Boulevard, parts of Sunset, Beverly Hills, you'll see it. If you know Pilates, or even if you don't, it's this strange contraption. I didn't really know what it was. It's it's in a room of similar contractions and they have bands and they move the body in all these natural and unnatural ways. And the intent is to build flexibility, strength, and tone. And I didn't know what the heck it was until I tore my meniscus and had to do it during rehab. And let me tell you, it feels great and it is more difficult than it looks. And it's like a great workout, but I mean, come on, Pilates is so LA, right? And what makes it so LA other than LA is the capital of Pilates studios is look, it's an expensive, exclusive workout, usually populated by a gaggle of actor actress type people right it's like the hot thing to do no pun intended and it used to be like yoga and hot yoga and things like that but pilates dominates the industry and by that i mean the insulated bubble of beverly hills hollywood and santa monica and that's that's la to a lot of people especially outside of la but pilates was actually developed in a place called Gladbach, germany by Joseph Pilates. Kid you not, Joe Pilates. How funny is that? And Pilates said that the inspiration for the method came during World War I when he was being held at an internment camp. He spent four years there, there and he worked with his fellow internees developing this method, this system of exercises that would strengthen the mind and body because he believed that mental and physical health were interrelated. And that's one of the core teachings of Pilates when you go to this Pilates class. And he learned all these regimens that 
or he applied all these regimens that were in Germany in his youth, and he developed his own method with a variety of equipment, which he called apparatus. The apparatus is, again, designed to help stretch, strengthen, align your body. And it's funny because the most popular apparatus is called the Reformer. Those are those funny machines you see. You walk up and down Ventura. There's like 10 Pilates studios like in a row almost. And it's just funny seeing these machines. It's called the Reformer because it universally reforms the body. How L.A. sounding is that? Honestly, it just it kind of cracks me up. But it still wasn't until the 1970s that Pilates came from came to L.A. The Ron Fletcher Company in West Hollywood was the first studio, followed by Elon and Brentwood, the Steffen Studio in Beverly Hills, and finally Kinetic Fitness in Tarzana, 1986. Isn't it funny? The areas I named, I mean, though, that's really like where those Pilates communities kind of developed around. And by 2010, it literally replaced yoga as the most popular place to be seen in L.A. for fitness, and it's unstoppable. Studios pop up in every upscale business corridor in L.A., the place to see and be seen for fitness in Los Angeles, a Pilates studio, which is not originally from Los Angeles, but halfway across the world in Germany. (laughs) Okay, number six thing that you think is from L.A. but isn't. Probably the most shocking for me who didn't grow up in the culture. This like totally seems like it's from LA. Surfing. There are 1.1 million surfers in Los Angeles, which is a staggering number when you think about it. The population of the county is only 10 mil. So 10% of people surf or at least claim to surf. That's that's mind-blowing. And again, that's more surfers than any other city on the globe right here in Los Angeles. And the Los Angeles craze surfing started in 1907 with Henry Huntington. Yes, Huntington, the the railroad magnate, one of the most responsible people for modernizing Los Angeles. Now, he wasn't a surfer, but he persuaded a man named George Freeth to give daily exhibitions at Redondo Beach as, quote, the man who walked on water. Because Huntington was trying to sell properties. And you know what? What better than an attraction? So Freeth would mount his eight-foot-long, solid-wood, 200-pound surfboard. 200-pound surfboard. Obviously, now they're different materials. But it was solid-wood, 200 pounds. And he wait for a wave, catch it, and ride on the beach while standing upright. And he performed up and down the coast, wherever Huntington was buying property and selling property, wherever all these guys were hiring him. L.A. all the way down to San Diego, demonstrating his board riding talents and showing people this magic walking on water. But it was still kind of a novelty act, even in L.A. And by 1920s, there were supposedly still only 20 to 30 surfers in the United States, all in Los Angeles. And they didn't call themselves surfers because that term hadn't even been invented yet. But enter Duke Kahanamoku to truly ignite the surfing craze. He first surfed Orange County and California as a whole in July of 1913 because he won a gold medal in freestyle swim in 1912 at Stockholm. And he noted surfing was his biggest hobby. Again, it wasn't called surfing. It was riding the waves, walking on the water and stuff like that. But he was following in the footsteps or in the waves of George Freeth and he wanted to take it to another level. And he recalled Los Angeles, by the way, in the 10s and 20s. He said there was nothing there but oil wells. And remember, all those pictures. L.A. was the oil capital of the world, by the way, in 1920s. Produced a quarter of the world's oil. And 
the pictures in Venice and, you know, Signal Hill down at Long Beach, crazy. And he was right. It was oil wells. But he was out there surfing with his buddy and occasional swim coach, George Freeth. So these two were going up and down the coast. And finally, when they were together, the newspapers started covering them. And Duke was becoming an actor. He's pursuing an acting career as LA's other nascent industry, Hollywood, was propping up. So he was starting to get some notoriety. And people were like, wait, this swimming isn't just, this surfing isn't just a novelty. It's kind of cool. But what it really took was when he joined the LA Athletic Club and he'd talk about surfing amongst LA's elite and he'd spread the gospel. And boys and men, it was mostly boys and men then of all ages, would follow in Duke's footsteps and the craze of surfing was born. Through the 50s and 60s, surfing was in a golden age of LA. Think about Gidget. There was a show about surfing, a boy, crazy teenager named Gidget. And surfing soon became so popular that LA surfers invented skateboarding so they could surf on dry land. And did you know, by the way, the modern skateboard was invented in LA by the Richards family of Val Surf and Valley Village. But that's not the point. This is LA culture surfing, skating right here, all from LA, right? But the thing is, George Freeth and Duke Kahanamoku were from Hawaii, which is the cradle of surfing, not LA. Now, surfing had its earliest origin in the Polynesian islands. James Cook, famous explorer, wrote about it in Tahiti in 1769. Again, it wasn't called surfing. But it was an important rite of passage in the Polynesian culture and the hierarchy of some communities centered around which man could best ride the waves. And these surfboards were, it was an intricate spiritual process that involved prayer, ritual, and symbolism. And it was an art. The art of surfing was integral in the lives of children, commoners, royalty, and warriors in the Polynesian islands. And when the Polynesians settled Hawaii, they brought surfing with them. And it was embedded deep into the Hawaiian culture. And that's when it became the cradle of surfing and surfing's portal to Los Angeles. So not from Los Angeles, but from the Polynesian Islands by way of Hawaii. Hey, so you always hear me talking about our good friends at Cerritos Auto Square. They sell more, so you save more. But check this out. I didn't realize this, but with their 23 powerhouse dealers, it's the largest auto center by annual sales in the entire country. And check this out. They made a documentary about the creation of this SoCal institution. And honestly, I watched it. There is a ton of archival footage from old SoCal, Los Angeles, Cerritos, stuff I've never seen before, going back to when the area was all dairy farms. And I didn't realize how much work and innovation went into creating the world's largest auto center. I'm talking partnerships with organizations, dealerships, the community. This was a massive, massive project, and it helped Cerritos in the area get to be what it is today. Now get this. You can watch this documentary for free at CerritosAutosquare.com slash movie. And I really, really want you to check this out. It's like an episode of LA in a Minute on steroids. And again, you can watch it for free. CerritosAutosquare.com slash movie. It's really good. It's really fun. And it's the story of our friends at Cerritos Auto Square. They sell more, so you save more. Last but not least, and perhaps the most important, the seventh thing you think is from LA but isn't. 
Hollywood. Wait, wait, wait. What? Okay, not Hollywood, because Hollywood is a city here, and it's it's Hollywood. But we know L.A. is not L.A. without Hollywood and without the movies and without our highest-profile industry, the industry that has more impact on world culture than any other industry. So, of course, of course it's from L.A. What do you mean Hollywood's not from L.A.? What does that even mean? Well, what that means is Hollywood, or at least the movies came from New Jersey. <laughs> More so, it was Thomas Edison who established the nation's first movie studio in New Jersey in 1892. What? So Thomas Edison is the reason why Hollywood became, well, Hollywood? Yeah, yeah. Thing is, Edison wasn't interested in creating picture motion pictures. He wasn't interested in entertaining or having an impact. He's more interested in using his patents to extract license fees. He knew there would be a market for this. So he would just sick his lawyers on whoever was trying to make these moving pictures saying that people were violating patents. And the would-be producers, these creative people are like, yo, I, I want to try my hand at this. Well, they were like, but I don't want to get sued. So they noticed the further away from New Jersey you could get, the further away you could be from the lawyers and the longer you could do your production before anybody would find out. And oh, by the way, the weather in LA is beautiful with a wide variety of exotic locales. You know it, the mountains, the beaches, the rivers, the LA river. I mean, you know LA has it all. So you could film it all. And films could be made year-round in any environment you could dream of. And again, it was thousands of miles away from Edison and his team of lawyers. Now, William Selig of Chicago was actually the firm produ first producer to permanently move to L.A. And he established Selig Polyscope Company in Echo Park in 1909. And soon after that, people saw the power of the film and just the, the entertainment value of seeing him and, and the new era, the new medium. Harry Chandler of the powerful LA Times established Hollywood and encouraged the budding film industry to locate there incentives and whatnot. And by 1912, there were 15 film companies operating in Hollywood. And by, 19, by 1915, 60% of all films were coming out of LA. And thus began the golden age of Hollywood. And Hollywood increased its reputation as the land of affluence, influence, and fame. And it's all due to Thomas Edison in New Jersey, not Los Angeles. Who knew? And thank you for listening to this episode of In a Minute with Evan Lovett. This was a fun one. And as much as I enjoy native Los Angeles, I always love the stories of successful transplants. It's what makes the LA American dream possible. So if you enjoyed this episode, please give a five-star rating. And if you loved it, leave a review. Super helpful for what I'm trying to accomplish here. Remember, most recent review gets featured on Apple along with the podcast description. So it's like a dope little bonus. But regardless, I wish you a fantastic week ahead and genuinely thank you for supporting the podcast. All right, y'all. It's been a minute.